This week on the It's Take Two podcast. That's a, a joy that every parent wants and doing this business allows me to look after my family that way and, and enjoy it while they're still young. You sweat so much you needed bloody wet floor sign. And I'm always stood near the radiator. <laughs> Just diving into things like that and making mistakes and learning, you, you do learn so much. Being able to not feel stupid and going, oh yeah, 50, yeah, 50 mil, I knew what you meant. And actually having no idea, being mm. able to say, what does that mean? was a real blessing back then. You don't get anything out of belittling someone else for not knowing what you know. Because you are self-employed, you can kind of do it on your terms, well, as far as you can. Obviously the wedding is run by- <laughs> Can you wedding me on a Sunday instead of a Jafadi? <laughs> Being able to let actors freely do what they want mm. was something that I learned quite early on. And I'll always be grateful to Stephen for that first moment that it happened. Welcome back to episode seven now of this take two podcast with me, Jordan. Me, Rob. And Oliver Mitchell. Hey, we've got the guest on, second guest of the podcast. This podcast, what is the podcast about, Bob? Well, it's about all things filmmaking, I would say, for new and emerging filmmakers, people in similar boats to us, looking to work in independent films, trying to get their shorts going, their features going, bit of advice for them, what we've learned, what we've done wrong and probably what we're hoping to do in the future. And we also want to learn from others as well, as we can share what we've picked up and learned, but we want to learn from other people as well, which is why we get guests in occasionally. Mm -hmm. Which lends us nicely to you, Oliver. Ollie, Ol, what do you prefer for the podcast? <laughs> Whichever you like, really. We'll, we'll alternate. <laughs> Mix it up. Do you want me to tell you who you are, or do you want to tell people who you are? I'll do it. I think I know just about now. So I'm Oliver Mitchell. I am a film director. I directed my first short film in 2015, so I suppose that's when that part of it began for me. Mm. And I'm also a wedding videography business owner, have been for about seven years now. And we're going to talk about a little bit about wedding videography today, aren't we? You know, should you do it? Is it just a sole thing that you you focus on or can it be a thing for filmmakers to do as well? Where this podcast is obviously about independent filmmaking, that's what we're aiming for, but all the things prior to making independent films, I think wedding videography is an area that's worthwhile doing and getting you know, on those weddings and filming them, and we'll talk about that a little later as to why. I drink my coffee so fast and I could do another one of these. To be fair, these got done really well. How much nice. milk you got? <laughs> I've used that whole four pinter, by the way. It's gone. Fucking hell. <laughs> Get a cow at this one. <laughs> So we like to ask our guests, our previous one guest, um, <laughs> and we've asked ourselves this, haven't we, in podcast episodes as well. If you could have directed a film that exists that you could say you've made and you could be like, I'm done now, I've, I've peaked with this film, what film would that be and why? That's a good question. Thank you. I mean, I came up with it, but thank you. <laughs> Jordan kind of haphazardly presented it there. but It's tricky because I think... Every time I've watched a film, I immediately think, oh, that was so good. I wish I could have made that. And then you know, two weeks later, I'll watch another film. I'm like, oh, I wish I'd have made that. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, The Greatest Showman, when I watched that, was one that I thought, I wish I'd have done that. They looked like they had such a good time on that film. Plus, who doesn't want to work with Hugh Jackman, right? Yeah, so, pretty cool. Point, I would have to yeah. say that right now. Yeah. Ask me tomorrow, it might be different. Yeah. Though that's the film I'd have loved to have made, I wouldn't put that in my top five films. Mm -hmm. No. Is, is it more from an experience perspective then, rather than a quality of work then? I think Not so. saying that Greatest Showman is a bad film, because no. I've, I've spoken about it saying it's a good film, but in terms of, for you as a director to say, I wish I'd worked on this film, is that from the experience that you've seen online, that you've read about or whatever, and be like, I want to have been part of that crew and experience, rather than necessarily the, is it acclamation? What's the word? Like the success that the film's received as a quality of product. No, I think it's all about the experience, for sure, because at the end of the day, us making films, yes, we want them to be good. The bottom line is we, we go to work. You know, that's our Monday morning. And the experience of what that feels like that, you know, your audience maybe doesn't see unless you have a good behind the scenes reel, that's what you go to work for. Um, maybe with The Greatest Showman, for example, the behind the scenes is so well produced that it looked like such a good time. In episode five, so two episodes ago, we 
<laughs> <You're all right>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what happened there. Where's the batteries going? <laughs> yeah, episode five was all about making a short film, wasn't it? And choosing when's the, a good time to make a short film, how, how to make one. Yeah, we, we gave out a lot of advice that would have been useful for us to hear <laughs> when yeah. we first started out, to be fair. But yeah, so you two met during university and you made short films. films. Yeah. Do you two want to talk a bit about the ones that you made? at that stage and what you learned at that <laughs> do you, point. Do you want to, are you staying or are you <laughs> shooting off? You just have a listen. So we, well, we'll tell you. <laughs> we, we were there. Ben Affleck <laughs> meme outside. <laughs> so we met at university. We did a couple of short films there. We did Ride Out, which was part of university. That was like a module film. And then, how did we meet? I, so you were looking for people. So my memory of it is I, I was aware of who you were, but we didn't really meet or anything in the first couple of years. And in the summer between that second and third year, someone recommended, oh, you want someone to shoot on camera? I know this guy, Rob Worsey. You kind of came on board and said, yeah, I'll shoot that with you. And we just, to be fair, at that point, we just ran straight ahead with it. You know, we were making this short film, which, you know, is a long short film. I think the final cut's like 32 minutes or something, which right. is a long short film. Yeah. But again, no one, no one had told me uh, an ideal short film length at that point, so I just thought, I'm going to make what I want. Um, I don't know what's going to go wrong. I don't know what's going to go right. That naivety of just going for it mm. was what kind of just... I, it set me straight, and I was like, right, I'm making this. And that's where we began. That's something that you lose as you get a few years in it, that kind of... Um naivety which is a shame really because we were so ambitious with that we were like we're going to do this big epic roman film nowadays we w we wouldn't even kind of really think about doing that because we know we wouldn't be able to pull it off well enough and so it's kind of a shame that you do lose that yeah i suppose naivety but that excitement and that openness yeah thing is the quality of what like of your guys roles and the crew who you work with now would be so much greater that it's almost like to get the quality, it'd be so much more time needed than at that stage when you were making yeah. student films or around that time. Well, it's just the money, isn't it? Yeah. That's all it comes it, down it, to. Yeah. The important part for me on that film was a lot of the littler jobs that I'd learned that I just had to do. So I'd not watched any videos on how to schedule a short film. I'd not watched any how long should you give for this and that and the other. I just got into the scheduling and thought, I think that'll take us this long. Mm. And then as you kind of progress and go on throughout your shoot you know that changes and you learn and go okay we didn't give that enough time there was one time i distinctly remember where we were chasing the sunset weren't we on the on that last day yeah, um, yeah and i was like you know we, we have to we have to <laughs> <laughs> i was rushing to like look we need to hurry up and get this and you're like relax we've got three shots left i'm like yeah but what about the next scene we ain't got scene 20 in the bag yet. And you went, what scene? What fucking scene? <laughs> and then that, and it was Another like, scene oh, down there with the sunset. And then when You're we, joking. When we got to that scene, it was like, like, it wasn't much of a scene. It was, right, the sun's just about gone. Let's do one quick shot. Guys, walk and action, go. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that can, that's not the first time. It's not the last time we did that either. Nah, that's the other nah. thing. But it's a learning curve, isn't it? And I think doing that film, we probably learned more on that film than a lot of the time we'd spent at university. Like you said, I don't remember really getting taught how to schedule and things like that and just diving into things like that and making mistakes and learning. You, you do learn so much. We've just wrapped on your debut feature film that you've directed, which we'll talk a little bit about in a bit. Seven years ago was when you made Il Constantia and Ride Out, was it? Eight years. Eight years ago. Mm. Obviously, we've been using great kit with C five hundred Mark IIs. We've been using sky panels. We've used, you know, we've been lucky with the kit we've been able to use now. What were you using back then? We used two cameras, didn't we? Two different cameras across the shoot. We had a five D Mark II, right, and then a Canon seventy D for the second block. Was the five D Mark II the one where it's like flagship, wasn't it? For like it was, HD? The, it was. Well, it was like the the start of the DSLR revolution. Yeah, yeah. lighting wise. Obviously, we've been shooting with sky panels and stuff like that recently. What did we have? We had three little newer hand basher LEDs and a gold and a gold reflector. So oh yeah, we gold could, reflector. You know, yeah. wobble the light and wobble the reflector to yeah. get the fire light. You know, from yeah. the fire that wasn't actually there. That's you know, clever though. <laughs> Just powered by AA batteries. The lights were lots of AAs, and that was it. That's all we had. Yeah. And in the location, one of the locations that we filmed at, you know, there was a 
bright orange floodlight that we couldn't find how to turn oh, off. Yeah. Yeah. And you had the idea of changing the you know the color grade and the. And you had the idea of of changing the white balance and the color grade so that that bright orange floodlight. <laughs> You're laughing. <laughs> Come on, that that bright orange floodlight. <laughs> I'm not doing look at you. I had the idea of turning this orange light into moonlight. So white balance change, did it in the grade. And this is on 1080p, 8-bit footage, yeah. shot at night. Worked all right. But it worked all right. Yeah. And it was a good example of, you know, really that using what you have to get the effect that you need. You Troubleshooting, know? isn't it? A yeah. Situation that you wasn't expecting to face. Yeah. And I remember even asking you, it was like, what... You said, oh, I'm putting a 50mm 1.8 with that little, what do we call it, the nifty 50, 50 yeah. Right? We had that on for a lot of it. And, you know, back then I wanted everything in the background to be blurred out because in my mind, that's what professional looked like. And some people love that effect and that's, you know, that's great. But for me, that's how professional movies looked at that point. I remember saying, how do I get that? How do I get the shallow depth? Which you told me that's what, I, I, no, what I said is, how do you get that blurry background? You Oh, you mean shallow depth of field? Yeah, that, how do I do that? Oh, well, you want to be at 50 more point eight for that. And I was like, let's do that. And actually being able to not feel stupid and going, oh, yeah, 50, yeah, 50 mil, I knew you meant. <clears throat> and actually having no idea, being mm. able to say, what does that mean, was a real blessing back then. We we didn't learn that in uni, did we? We re didn't really know about focal lengths or apertures and stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure they told us it, but whether it didn't sink in, you know, it's one of the things they tell you in first term and then you forget. But yeah. like the first freelance job I did was like a little Halford adverts. And I remember asking a DP on that, what the what the focal lens meant and what, what the numbers on the lenses mean. Yeah. That, but that was end of end of first year, I think, going into second year. But this is third year and we hadn't kind of gone over that again. Yeah. It's worth saying that I wasn't massively interested in camera at that point. Yeah, true. Um, yeah. So I didn't seek out to do the camera classes and say, what does it mean when I have a zoom or a prime lens? You know, what does a... What does the 1.8 stand for? What does that make the image look like? You mm. know, And that's not to say if you're going to go into directing that you need to learn what that means, because you don't. You just have to be able to tell a DP, I want to get this look. How do I do that? Mm. So this is not to say you need to learn the numbers, but it did help to be able to go, oh, what does 1.8 mean? And for you not to turn around and go, 1.8, what are you on about? You, yeah. yeah, come on, you know. That was nice that not to, it was nice not to get that reaction, but to actually get, oh, it means this. Oh, brilliant. Right, I'll note that. Um, That's a very good point, isn't it? When when you're in teams and, you know, small crews, when you're at that stage of your career, you'll know your role and everyone will know their own role respectively enough to be confident in doing that role on the day. But don't knock other people down for not knowing things that's not, not necessarily their primary soul. I've got a head. <laughs> <laughs> that's their soul... Um, what's the word? Like main focus. role, yeah, sole yeah. focus. That you don't get anything out of belittling someone else for not knowing what you know. But you've you've made it sound like I was an absolute superstar on that, knowing knowing everything. But at one point, you know, we were we used a Ninja Two, which is like the uh, old version of the Ninja Five, oh. to get like ten bit footage because it's better quality. Never mind that it's only an 8-bit output on the HDMI LM cameras, so it's fucking irrelevant. The product was advertised as 10-bit. Like, yeah, cause, well, because when you get it in the computer, it says 10-bit. It's like, yeah, you have recorded 10-bit, but it's an 8-bit signal. Pointless. I think you couldn't get a clean HDMI output on the 70D. Oh. So it was just like a box in the middle, so it wasn't full 1080. But I remember like one of the tech guys saying, oh, yeah, but because the quality's better, it's worth it. And then also, at one point, we didn't turn off the um, menu display, did oh, we? Oh, yeah, the record symbol in the corner was burning yeah, to the final image red dot and it was like uh, you know, crop everything in didn't we we cropped everything in and we slapped on 235 mask <laughs> to get that yeah. aspect ratio that we wanted which saved your ass well it did yeah, yeah but i wouldn't have done it that way looking back um and then we came away from that from slapping the bars on well like, it took me longer than others but it, it took me a while to get away from just Chucking bars and thinking this looks cinematic. You know, it's learning curve, learned from it, and then only did it a couple of times again since. So, <laughs> no, I did I have never done it again. I think it's important as well to just not expect or not assume that you'll have the best kit from the start when you start making films, because you know some people are lucky enough to have all this kit in their early days of filmmaking. But it's good to 
find yourselves in situations that's on a lower level of production, learn from those mistakes, troubleshoot those problems that you guys faced back then as well. Learn your way up so then you know how to eradicate any issues throughout your progress of what you're becoming as a director, as a DP, as a camera op. So when you do get to that stage, it feels easier because you, you know, you've got that backlog of yeah. solutions and things in your, in your back pocket. I think you definitely learn more when you're limited on a kit because you've got to get things right. And if you don't get it right, you know, if you shoot an 8-bit relatively flat picture profile compared to shooting raw, if you mess up your white balance or exposure, you're going to know about it and you're going to learn from it. Whereas if you're shooting raw, you can just kind of fix it in post and you get away with it. You're not necessarily going to learn from it. So the editor will hate you. Yeah, and the <laughs> yeah, color yeah, graders will hate yeah, you. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's it's good to be kind of forced into learning stuff like that Yeah, by being limited on the kit. First film eight years ago now. This year, just gone, I suppose. 2022, you directed a feature film. What's carried over from that first film? What? How do you see things differently? What's changed? I remember going into the first day of the short film, the first ever day, and I was, and I was like, right, I've got a lot to do today. And I remember thinking I've got to have all the answers. Yes, you've got to know your film, you know, inside out almost, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be able to have an answer to everything or do everything your way. There's one example with Stephen Anthony, who's an actor we've worked with a couple of times now. The scene at the end when the son comes back to his mother and the mother embraces him, and I said to them, at this point, I want you to grab and fall to your knees because it's going to be really dramatic. The music's going to swell. And I did it, and it was great in my head. Didn't work for your camera angle, I don't think. I was probably just on a tripod, just like tilting down. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And Stephen Anthony very quietly... Uh, came up to me, gave me a suggestion he made and just said, you know, I don't think that's how a mother would react to her first seeing her son who's been missing for days or weeks. And at first I was a bit like, don't tell me what to do. This is, I need to have the ideas. And then I thought to myself, Stephen's her father. He knows how he would react in that situation. I thought, hang on, let's just try one. And Kelly Wood, who plays the mother in the film, she's a mother as well. And they kind of agreed between them, yeah, that is a more suitable reaction. And I was like, but it's not as cinematic, you know, it's not as mm. gut-wrenching anyway. So we tried one and then I was like, nah, this is better. And all of a sudden I realised they were trying to get the authenticity of that performance based on their experiences. And I learned from then to let actors bring their ideas to the table because everyone's in a different stage in their lives and you don't know what people have been through to bring something to that performance. Being able to let actors freely do what they want mm. was something that I learned quite early on. And I'll always be grateful to Stephen for that first moment that it happened. Is it time for a shout out? Shout out time. Shout out. Shout out. As the guest, Ollie's, yeah. Ollie's gonna choose. Who are you shouting out? I think Kate Worsey. Kate is one of the primary producers at Relic Films and she does a hell of a lot of work in the lead up uh, on the production side of things and then an incredible amount of work adding to that as an AD on our films as well and I think she does incredible work. Yeah, she's all right, isn't she? Nice one. <laughs> Which, are we doing what? hot or cold? Cold. We'll do one of each for the edit. That'll work. Mm. In all seriousness, Kate is one of our Relic producers. Uh, she's also my wife, which is why I haven't shouted her out yet because it's just a bit... Bit of nepotism in it, really. But yeah, she's integral in our, well, certainly my filmmaking anyway. You know, she's the first point of call for feedback on ideas and things like that. And I think having people around you that are supportive really does help. You know, working with family and friends that are close to you is, I mean, I think it's key throughout, but particularly in the beginning, you know, when you've got these crazy ideas that I'm going to make movies, it does sound a bit kind of, you know, reaching a bit high, especially for me. I remember being told, like, really? Media studies? Is that, mm. is that even a thing? You know, I'm from a, a town where it's not particularly considered a, the first choice, but having the people around me who said, I'm going to come and help you. You know, my wife, would, she's always on the set helping. My brother's always come up and help. Um, without that support, I don't think you can make these things. So I think it helps massively, yeah. doesn't it? Mm. Yeah, definitely. So really, we should shout out all family and friends that help us. But we've done it now, so too late. Do that next time. What made you want to become a director? What was the moment where you thought, I want to direct? When I watched National Treasure. Was it? Yeah. Yeah. 
And when was that? That was, I'll have seen it when it came out. So I was, oh God, when did National Treasure come out? About 2004, was it? Something like that, yeah. So I was 10 years old when I saw National Treasure and I don't know, I don't really know exactly why, but there was something about that film that I left that cinema going, that's what I want to do. I want to make those films. Mm. You know, at 10 years old, I must have been. And I think that's the point when I was like, yep, yeah, I'm going to make films. It wasn't, I didn't watch a classic like everybody else does. There's a lot of classics, you know, admittedly, I've still not seen. But I know I saw that one and went, I want to make that. Have you seen National Treasure? No. You've never seen it? I've not seen it. You've mentioned it previously. I, it, yeah. about I watched it again the other week. Yeah. I watched it again the other week because the Disney Plus show has come out. They've done a series on it, which isn't as good, I don't think. Uh. The, the thing is with National Treasure is they're obviously following all these clues and stuff like that. Like, correct me if I'm wrong because Ollie's a bit of an expert on it. But they follow these clues and then when they work them out, it makes sense. It's logical. It's like, oh, I see how they've got there. With the Disney Plus series, this isn't really a spoiler, but they'll work stuff out and it's so fucking abstract. It's like, how on earth have you worked that out? And that's right. Like, you could have gone a million ways with that and they just come up with the right answer. It's like, oh, we're looking for some symbols in here. Oh, it's the snake. The snake means this. Like, wow. That isn't, you're an absolute genius or or it's just written in the script. One thing I like. That's my little rant over. There's one thing that I saw on the behind the scenes of National Treasure is that Jerry Bruckheimer says, who produced the film, when they came up with the sequence to Ben has to steal the Declaration of Independence, that's also not a spoiler. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> it's also not a spoiler. It's quite early on. Um, so he has to steal the Declaration of Independence, which is probably the most guarded document in America. He says that they went to people who would have the skills to do this and asked, how would we do this? And they get the real research on how would you do that. So I think that's where, coming back to that authenticity thing again, that's why you believe it so much because the logical steps are given to them by experts. I've also seen on you know interviews and stuff with actors, you'll hear that actors go to the environment of the character that they're playing and they'll learn you know whether it's personality traits or how they you know physically act and move. That goes back to what you were saying about a, a director if the actor's been and researched there in the moment in the environment that they're going to be portraying, they know way more immediately than the director. The director knows how to get them to perform, but in terms of those little niches, that's what the actor brings to the table. Not all the time, granted, depending on yeah. you know the scale and the amount of pre-production time or whatever, but that goes. that's again to say how the actors can bring so much more than just reading the scripts that they're given. That's a good point because... Speech! (laughs) No, that is a good point. But, I mean, you've said it there where directors, they say they're a jack of all trades. They they come into the film knowing a little bit about everything, but not loads and loads of stuff about that character or about that particular role, which is why getting the right people cast, getting the right people to work with you on the crew is vitally important because they will hone in and focus in on their job, on their role, Whereas as a director, yes, you know all the roles and the characters inside out at one point, but then by the time you get to the film, you've got a million things to think about. So having the right people focus in on, this is what I'm doing, that's how you know you can do a good job because those people help you to do that. I think that's what it's all about, really, isn't it? I mean, we're obviously, we're still very early on in the, the journey, but what I found is trying to direct, it's not, like you said earlier, it's not about having the right answer or knowing exactly what it is and not taking other ideas. It's about getting the right people around you and then curating all the, their ideas and their input to the film that you want to make. So having that vision in your mind and people coming up with suggestions and, and working out, do those suggestions fit into the vision I have? Will it work? And then going for it, not necessarily just having all the ideas yourself. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I think when, you, when you're starting out and when you first start out, that's an easy idea to have in your head is that if I'm director, I've got to come up with everything and it's just got to be my ideas. So do you want to talk a bit about the film that you've just finished or almost finished shooting on? We don't want to give too much away at this stage, do we? Because it's still very early days, but it's your first feature that you've directed. How have you found overall the experience of directing a feature compared to a short film? Because to some people, that's a huge step. I mean, I was lucky because a lot of what I did, I could follow what you did on Among the Living, which was helpful because I've seen some of the the battles that we had there. 
I've seen how you've handled it and, and I thought, okay, that's something I can take into the next one. So that was a big help, not kind of not being the first one to do it, to direct a feature. It was definitely hard to keep the whole film in your head, I think, particularly with this one, because I had an original idea that wasn't quite landing. You took on the writing of the script, which, you know, at the time was an absolute godsend. I don't know if I'd have written anything close to what was eventually in the... Stop. Stop it. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> I think that's important to recognise that you don't have to write the script in order to be confident in that director role. I think most of the time it is in the industry, isn't it? It's just... You either get those writer directors, or you get you know script writers who are selling scripts or passing them on, and then you get directors via it. I think that's often the case. Yeah. At this level, where we're still a minimal crew, you know, in regards to a feature length, the, the crew was what for? What would it have been for this recent one overall? There was no more than probably twenty five people on any one day. Some days there were twelve. Some days there were six. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it really varied on who was available and where we were and what we were shooting, really. So even though it was a small crew, it doesn't necessarily mean that writer and director have to be joined together. I imagine the bigger challenge would have been in your case. So you write the thing, you handed it over, but then on set, because you were the DP as well, if I had some ideas that you thought, mm, I'm not sure that's what I had in mind, to kind of have to come in there and, and say, do you think it should be more like this? And I would go, yeah, that's a good point, actually. I didn't think about that. Having the writer there is really helpful. And in fact, you know, the, the, the honesty of that is that sometimes I didn't listen. Maybe I should have listened more sometimes. Maybe I should have listened less. You, who knows? Um, but that comes back to that. Don't always You don't always need to have the ideas, you know? Mm -hmm. If I was just sat watching and, and listening, then you'd probably have more of those thoughts and those ideas. But because I was so busy working, shooting, lighting, that it didn't happen often, I don't think. But whenever you did speak up and say, what do you think of this? It was always helpful. That's the thing as well. You've written it. If you had three directors and you gave the script to the three different directors, there'd be three different films in some way as well. Oh, yeah, totally. Which is, yeah. Which is another thing to highlight, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say the biggest thing you've taken away from directing a feature has been? I would say with the scheduling, for example, so with this one, we shot in three blocks over a span of five months, I think it was. And whilst in one way that's useful because you can do a block, put it behind you, do a second block, put that one behind you, it meant that, you know, the film never felt like it was getting finished because we were dragging things out and dragging things out. Whereas actually looking back, maybe one large block in a month to have shot the whole thing might have been better because that also ties into, how, I think you've got to have your head in the game and it's hard to put your head in the game as a director. You've always got to be pushing forward on the morale front to get everybody you know spurred up and going. Um, and I think to do that in the space of a month is achievable. To continue that across five months, I think that's really tricky. It's a massive commitment, isn't it? doing any sort of feature getting it's your sole focus for the duration of the shoot so yeah spreading that out over five months is probably not the best way to do it which is just something we've done we learned from and we're just taking forward in future we might have said in the past we have to remember you know where we're at in our careers the time that people can give up whether it's on a voluntary basis yeah. for some for a whole crew to give up a month of their time whilst from a filmmaking side of things you'd be in the zone for that entire month from a voluntary and from a crew side of things, it's more difficult at this stage of our careers to give all of that time up in one go. Therefore, that's why from a scheduling perspective, it span across however long it's taken. That's something that as a director, you need to be aware of going into this filming part of the film, knowing that no matter when you shoot, however long it takes to shoot it, your head's got to be in the game as much as you can. So what would you say is one of your highlights from the shoot? Sharing a bed with me for a week. It's got to be. Yeah. Did you actually? Yeah. Yeah. There was one double <laughs> bed. choice. <laughs> one double bed and I said, me and John are having that one. I think day one was a big, was a big day and a big highlight for me because, you know, we, we arrived with all the kit at the, at the money location and, and all of a sudden, you know, most of the crew are there and it's like, oh my God, this is real. And, you know, directing a feature myself was, was like, 
the day that I've been thinking about for nearly a decade is, oh, it's, it's here, it's now, it's happening right now. And that was a real kind of pinch me moment in that, wow, this is, this is a big deal. It was a little scary at the same time, but that was a that was a good highlight. It was a it was a good scary. I can remember when you turned up on day one in that big red van, and like oh, for yeah. me that even that sounds something really small, but you turning up in a van and we've got a van full of kit, it just felt like a a little step up, a minor step up from you know opening the back of our boots and you know C stands smashing through windows and things oh, like God. that. It wasn't actually a C stand that smashed my windows; it was, was the it? rails. Oh, was it? Oh, yeah, dolly rails. Oh. Yeah, back window gone. Oh, gutted. You close your boot, it just popped straight through, the window just shattered, and we both stood there, looked at it, and you just went, well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's halfway through a day, so we had another location to go to. It's not even like you can just go home. Is the worst bit of that 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 scene got cut as well? I hadn't thought of that. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking smash me windscreen for nothing. £90 from Auto Glass for nothing. Oh, That didn't go on the budget. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we actually we've actually said, but you were on set for most of it as well. You were in the camera team, camera op. Yeah. What was your favourite moment? I remember what you said when we when we all sat down. But looking back now, what was your favourite? What did moment? I say? When we were both on camera, we were doing a scene, and <laughs> and I said, "Can you just pan across a little bit, John?" Yeah. <laughs> you said, <laughs> and you said, "What pan across a laugh?" That was my highlight. I That's think, become yeah. a thing, hasn't it? Yeah, now, yeah. Well. So, pan across a laugh. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's those little moments that, you know, you, you do remember. And when, even when you watch the scenes in the films, you remember the behind the scenes of those moments. And that's what I, I like the most. Which comes back to that point of we do this, A, to make good films, but also to for the experience of turning up every day and talking to like-minded people and enjoying yourselves and Working having a good mates. time. Yeah, exactly. So Jeremy Clarkson's been in the news lately. This will tie in okay. for all the random stuff he said. But it made us think of Top Gear and the fastest lap, and we thought we need to do the fastest lap for our podcast. I mean, I do have the car that was the... No, it wasn't. Is that yeah, the Kia Seed was once the star of the reason to be prized car. He yeah. called it the C apostrophe D, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we could do racing. Sure. I came up with this old bit, but we don't need it. Sorry, we've gone off track there. So hey, we've, hey. oh, <laughs> Jesus. we've come up with this little segment idea for the podcast for when we have guests on. And what we're going to do is we're going to work out how mainstream your top five films are and how eclectic you are. So we've asked Ollie in advance to prepare his five films. Which, which he's definitely got. Which he says he hasn't done. One bit of homework we gave him for the podcast. And what we're going to do is we're going to add up, not how well rated they are but how many ratings they've got on IMDb so we're not going to hold you to this so next time you're on sure. you can submit a new answer um, but if they're all suddenly random films that no one's ever heard of we'll know you're cheating just to get the top of the leaderboard so top five films what would you say all for I today I would say for today number one Inception nice. oh great shout yeah always been my top favourite that's an easy one uh, Captain Phillips oh, yeah good shout Train Spotting. nice just for the viewers watching this Bob's t- tallying up the ratings is not just messaging going yeah I'll, oh, oh yeah, do you want me to great. tally them up I was just <laughs> what what I would say La La Land nice I'm going to say it National Treasure nice it'll probably be mine I'm not so what's lie. the point you have to get best rating basically the the best lowest rating, rating means that you have a more niche oh, it's absolute nonsense of... it's total nonsense yeah. it doesn't mean anything but we thought it'd be quite fun they're doing a National Treasure 3, apparently. They've not found it yet. <laughs> it's actually different treasures. If you watched it, you would know. It's probably worth saying at this point, whilst Bob's calculating Ollie's, if you want to do this at home, tally up your five favourite films, give us your score, and just... Shall, shall we get them to message the scores in? Yeah, definitely. Message, message your scores in, yeah. So it's the number of ratings. It's nothing to do with how well they're rated. As in, um, yeah, the amount of so ratings. So it's the amount of times it's been rated on IMDb. Uh, that's what we're going with. Yeah. Okay. So mine are, where's my notepad? Skyfall. Nice. Superbad. Oh, great. Nice. Film. Great film. Room. Really? Yeah, I do like Room. Uh, it's Cohen. Danny Cohen. <laughs> Absolutely loves him. Joker. Interesting. And The Greatest Showman. What scores have you got then? Skyfall has 701,000. Nice. 125. 
Superbad has 1.3 million. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Room has 423,922. And then The Greatest Showman has 285,431. Right. Collectively, it comes to 3,295,478. Jesus. Yeah. Right, What's yours? La La Land with 594,000. A ghost story. Fucking love a ghost story. 74,000, that's a good one. Oh, that's score. a good that one. That's a good one. Yeah. Among the Living, 200 ratings. <laughs> oh! <laughs> no, no, it's not, it's not. I've not put that in there. Full Monty. Love the Full Monty. 108,000. This is England. Yeah, 124,000. Mm-hmm. And American Movie. Have you seen American Movie? No. I've not seen oh, it. It's the documentary about the filmmakers in America. I watch it once a year. It's amazing. Uh, all right. If if you haven't seen it, listeners, get on it. It's brilliant. Eighteen thousand. So I got I got a cushy nine hundred eighteen k. Not even a million. Not even a mil. Under Ooh. a mil. So out of us three, mine's got to be five million, surely. So you went with Inception, which <laughs> netted you a cushy two point four million. <laughs> to start with, <laughs> Captain Phillips four hundred sixty five thousand. Train spotting six hundred ninety one thousand, La La Land again five hundred ninety four thousand, National Treasure three hundred thirty seven thousand, giving you a total of four point four eight seven million. Oof. So that's uh, currently I'm winning. So I'm losing. Yeah. And then you and then Ollie's last. Yeah. When well, we get Dean back on, Dean will win because he'll just oh, come yeah. out with some absolute random shit we've never heard of. Yeah. So yeah, good little segment. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing. What other people do? Hopefully they get less than or more than three million. <laughs> I can't be near the bottom. It doesn't look good if you. It's right. not looking good, is it? You knew the segment. You could have picked more random films as well. We'll carry that on as we get guests. And for any new listeners, be sure to tally up your own. Yeah, send your scores and see what you get. How do we get in touch, Bob? TikTok now. We are now on new. TikTok. We are now on TikTok. Yeah. I said we shouldn't do it, but George's done it anyway. Yeah. What are we on TikTok? It's Take Two Podcast TikTok. No, just without the TikTok. <laughs> it's Take Two Podcast. I managed to get the username in. It's the same across all channels, Instagram, TikTok, and the email account. It's Take Two Podcast at gmail.com. YouTube, what are we on YouTube? It's Take Two Podcast. What are we on Instagram? It's Take Two Podcast. Oh, it's well planned, isn't it? The algorithm's going to be like, oh, this is uh, this is trending. This is uh, Facebook? We're not on Facebook. We're not on Facebook. I've, I've, Apparently I've, Facebook's for boomers now. What are boomers? Like old people. Jesus. We've got our own boomers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, apparently like young people aren't on it. Oh yeah, I've, I've heard that actually. I mean, I don't use it like that. Oh, I need to come off it then, that's a joke. Yeah. So as well as the films, you also own your own business that you mentioned right at the start of this episode. <laughs> Do you want to tell us a bit about how you got into wedding videography that has then become your now you know full-time business that you've got? Yeah, well I kind of fell into wedding videography i did a second shooting job for you you were shooting for someone else and wasn't sure what to expect and you kind of helped me through the day and i remember coming away with that thinking that was, i enjoyed that i think for me one of the key things about it is you've got to you've got to enjoy doing them you've got to love doing them that's not to say that you have to be in love with the job every single day you know some days you know you've got a lot of weddings in a row uh, especially around summertime you think i've got to get myself through this but the key thing that I like about them is that everyone's in a good mood on a wedding day. Everyone's happy to be there. Everyone's happy to chat to you. And that is that satisfaction that you get back is it's really nice. We've all dabbled into wedding videography throughout our career so far. I've made the decision to phase out of wedding videography as I, you know, the freelancing is going well and things like that. But I know personally what I learned in weddings and wedding videography is so transferable when it comes to filmmaking of different kinds, whether that's Essentially, it's a documentary that we're making. It's a cinematic documentary. That's how I used to sell it to couples as well, that you're capturing things when you've got one chance. It builds you up so much as a competent filmmaker and as a videographer or a cam op that I'd say doing weddings is an invaluable skill or an invaluable experience to have done at some point. But you said it right. You've got one chance to capture the bride or the groom coming down the aisle. That's one chance in that person's life. You know, the, hopefully the one time they do it and you're there to make sure you get that moment and if you mess it up touch wood or touch veneer, veneer. 
that I've luckily not had any issues yet. You can't ask them again, can you? Like, no. so reset, come yeah, on. You, you, know, you don't have that luxury. Yeah. So to learn to make sure you've got that covered is a skill that, in fact, that's a stress that never leaves you. I'm lucky in that I've, I'm not far off now, 200 weddings. And every single time I do a new one, it's like, oh God, the ceremony, your heart starts racing, you know. Speeches is a little bit different, for example. So I've been in situations where the speeches have started and I am not ready. And in the early days, I, I was like, oh, okay. And then I missed the first five minutes because I didn't have the guts to stop. And where's the last one that I did? They started without me and I literally held the room. and was like, just pause one minute. And the bride and groom know, well, this is going to be captured forever. Mm. Yeah, it's fine. We'll let him off. I've had to do that. I've had to stop uh, stop speeches because I was given a certain time, half five, say. You go in at ten past five and you hear the uh, the MC go, and now the father of the bride, and you just think... The hustle's what? not even gone down from them arriving yet, have they? Like, yeah. The couple sitting down and then you hear that. And I'm that. coming in with my bags and, and I'm like, Jesus. I ran through the tables and I said to him, you've got to give me like two minutes. Put a mic on him, got cameras up and got going, but... There's nothing worse than when the, the MC says we're just going to hold fire for the videographer just to set up we'll be yeah. a few minutes because then everyone is like yeah but at that point you can play on the banter of it you know the first time i did it i did i got looks everywhere and it was and i felt awful and the second time I, it happened to me i was like you know what i'll have a bit of banter with this and you were just saying to guests as you were passing sorry 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 and everyone went, come on and you, you're having a laugh and uh, the best man got up at one point and was like well, now that Ollie's had his fun, I can start. And it was like, hey, you know, yeah. you kind of, you're embarrassed, but at the same time you go, you know, let's just laugh this off. The couple will thank me. But with the ceremony, you can't do that. No. So you have to be ready to go. For me, it's that 10, 15 minutes before a ceremony starts, where if preparation or getting into dresses or suits, that takes too long, say if hair and makeup's taking too long, You've got 15 minutes, you know you still need to set up in the ceremony. Two or three cameras, yeah. plus mics, we've got to set that up. That preparation, if that bleeds over into that time before the ceremony, that's your time that you've lost. I remember being at the front of the ceremony, rushing, getting all the kit up. And when it's before a ceremony starts, everyone's facing forward, oh, except the groom and the best man stood at the front. There's me like... <sighs> <laughs> just trying to you sweat away. so much you needed bloody wet floor sign and I'm always <laughs> stood near the radiator <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the heating's always on in these nice hotels these big hotels and I'm there like just trying to like find the dial to turn, <laughs> turn it down to one it's awful though that's the most stressful moment for me of any wedding day mm. it's nice when it's in the venue and you've set up an hour before that's yeah. great but sometimes you have moments where you have to react quickly to the situation that you're in whether that's to do with time weather location mm. all of those combined once you pick up and learn from those situations that you find yourself in, makes you a better filmmaker, especially from a documentary perspective where you've got no time or one chance to do that sort of stuff. What's the shortest time you've had to set up for a ceremony? I think Four I minutes. Five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had it where the... Oh, oh God, that's PTSD. Do you want right to tell this? <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll I... put the colour grey to black and white, add a bit of sad music. So the bride and groom had told me that the church is, you can walk through a snicket um, or an alleyway and you can kind of get down and beat the cars. They might have underestimated the time it took to get there because all of a sudden I'm arriving as the car arrives with the bride. Oh. And I've thought, right, forget three cameras, I ain't got the time. And the bride's there, the music starts. I've just put a mic on the groom. That's all I had time for. And she says, we need to go. I'd set the camera at the back balcony going and I could not for the life of me find my second camera. I'd put it down and I did the whole ceremony handheld on one camera. Every movement I did was carefully calculated yeah. to sit down and the clients fed back that they absolutely loved their video. So luckily, thanks to GH5 stabilization, you just, you just roll with it. But I think that's why weddings are, they're like the best training you can get really because there is so much pressure mm. and I think that's where I learned to focus pull as well because I was on an 85 mil equivalent. I always get like the bride coming down, manual focus, and you just get good at focus pulling from doing that because you can't yeah. mess it up because you have to get it. And yeah. I think it's it's so good to go through that, like you say, even for a, a, a few weddings, even if you don't do it full-time or whatever, but just to get that pressure and that training because nothing gets you in the zone like that, I don't think. In terms of roles that you do have to do on one given day of doing wedding videography, from top down, you direct. You yeah. direct two people who have no experience acting or performing in front of a camera. 
So you have to get those looking comfortable to a standard that you're, you know, you're happy with in order to get this shot and move on. Camera operator, a standard. Sound, you're even your own marketing because your reputation on the day could get you another job on the day. So you, regardless of how bad or, you know, good your wedding day is going as a filmmaker, you still have to put up that front as though everything's going fine because you might get another job out of that. You're doing so many roles. It's a lot for some people and that's why some people might not carry it on. So, I mean, kudos to you for, is it 200 that you've done so far? Just short of, yeah. You know, that's, far off. that's an impressive amount. I don't think I've done 100 and I'm I'm phasing out and I feel like I've learned enough doing those. It's important to say as well, there's been times where I've almost decided I'm going to phase this out. I'm not doing this anymore. This is nothing against anyone's wedding in particular, just because you feel you know, things change. And I've always done it alongside, you know, full-time work as well. So that was always, you know, stressful and... Then I've you know I've got a young family as well, but then what I found is because you are self-employed, you can kind of do it on your terms. Well, as, as far as you can. Obviously, the wedding is run by. <laughs> can you wedding me on a Sunday instead of a Saturday? To a degree, yeah. you can operate your business yourself, and that's something that's important to me. If you've got three in a row, someone you know asks you to do a fourth one. It's not like a, a boss is saying to you, "You've got to work. Mm. Come on, we've got to get this done." You can just say, "No, I'm, I am at capacity for that week." mentally physically time-wise as well yeah. and the fact that for me i can drop my work go and pick up my children from school that's a, a joy that every parent wants and doing this business allows me to look after my family that way and, and enjoy it while they're still young so there's a lot out there on um cameras for weddings and things like that but i think one of the most important things and quite often overlooked when people start out is sound equipment for weddings because that's what really sets your wedding videos apart when you've got a good sound quality. If you were starting out now, what would your sound kit be? What would you go for first? What do you think you, you need as essentials to do a good wedding video? I would choose the Sony TX650s. They only record MP3, so they don't record WAV files. So they quality-wise, they are not the best, but they are good quality enough to use professionally and to charge the money that you charge to provide good sound. You can set them all recording in your hand. You can have four or five of them. There's no wires, there's no SD cards. It's all internal memory, internal battery. You set it going, you switch the lock on, and you pin it to people's lapels, to the shirts, even to dresses, you know. If you can't pin it to someone, you can put it on a table. Mm. So is that ease of use? For me, yeah. Because I've been in that situation too many times where I've not had the time to prep, I would pick that any day over having WAV files. Which is what I did. I started out when I first started, I got the Zoom F1s, which are great quality audio. They're really nice. I still sometimes do it to the groom um, if I've got enough time. When you're in a time-limited situation, to just clip it on so quickly, especially what I find with vicars or celebrants or registrars, by literally just going, you know, asking them politely, clipping them on, grabbing it as soon as they're done, it's much less of a hindrance. Once I made that move from the F1s to the TX650s or TX660s, which have this like slightly upgraded version, yeah. isn't it? It's so much easier and not much. You know, you can do a little bit of audio tinkering in, in post if you want to, but they're great. Yeah, I've had photographers sometimes say, can you take that mic off? And that's a tricky one where you have to respect your, your colleagues, um, but at the same time, you feel a bit like, I need to have that there. So these allow me, instead of having them maybe here, for mm. example, you can put them in shirt pockets or or uh, lapel pockets or something like that. I've never had a photographer ask to take the mic off. I've had a few outdoor ones where I've had to add like the small dead cats and they, they look horrible. I don't like the yeah. look of them. And they're saying, do you really need that? I'm like, well, they're either going to get bad sound. And we've spoken about the importance of good quality sound. That sometimes I've had to be a little bit selfish and be like, I need this in order for them to have a good video. But those Sonys allow you to compromise and you can move it. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons other than audio quality is why I, I would choose them. So yeah, I would say three or four Sony TX650s to act as your lapel mics and a couple of um, Rode shotgun mics to put on top of the cameras that you have as well. Do you want to give us a quick rundown of the rest of your kit then? Yeah, so I'll always shoot three cameras for ceremonies and speeches, but then for the rest of the day, you know, I'm running with one or two cameras. So I started with the Panasonic GH5, um, which is, a, as you guys know, is a brilliant, brilliant camera. I did use it with zoom lenses to start with, uh, the 12 to 40 mil, which 
is a brilliant lens. But then I decided I'd like to try shooting with two primes. So having a, you know, 45 mil on one and a 17 mil on another and trying to see if that is a, creates better images. Um, obviously primes are much nicer to shoot with. However, I do feel that I was missing the odd moment here and there because I couldn't zoom quick enough or I had to quickly get the other camera. Right. So having tried both zooms and primes in weddings, I'm actually more of a fan of zoom lenses. So I might move back into that uh, going forward, I think. There's always compromise, isn't there, with zooms versus primes, whether that's a low light thing, especially with weddings, you never know what venue or environment you're going to face. Mm. I've always primarily or predominantly shot with zooms. And when I had the GH5 at the time, that you know, it's, it's an amazing camera still now. It holds up really well. We've now got the, the A7S3s. I know you're looking to maybe purchase that as well. With that camera, low light is, isn't ever an issue, which is why I'm still comfortable using zooms for, for weddings. Whereas there are some limitations in a lot of, you know, smaller sense cameras like the GH5. It holds up well. You can get to what is, what would you say is the maximum ISO for a GH5? I wouldn't push it above 3200, for example. Um, that being said, I don't think couples worry about noisy images that much. And I think it's one area of filmmaking where you can push into noisy images a little bit more, especially in the evening when you've not got the light and you can't light scenes properly because it affects what's going on. Yeah, 3200 is probably a max I would push it, whereas obviously other cameras can go higher. I think for me, I've never really cared about max ISO. I'd, I'd rather go up to 12800 or whatever and expose nicely and even bring it down a bit in the grade. Capture the moment rather yeah. than... Because, I mean, shooting on GH5, G9, I was pretty much always on the Olympus Pro lenses because still my favourite lenses, I absolutely love them. And they're 1.2, so you never really had to push it that high. But if you were in that dark environment, I would just always just chuck it up anyway because it's much better to have the shot and have it grainy than not have it at all. If you shoot different types of video as a filmmaker, whether you're doing commercial work or weddings, that's where your mindset has to shift a little bit, doesn't it? Where you're thinking more about the end client rather than on these commercial works or freelancing works, you know, you want your footage to be clean and all this. But when it comes to weddings, it's capturing the moment rather than mm-hmm. capturing the cleanest exactly. looking footage, the best looking footage, best lighting in the world. You're not always guaranteed to get that. So hopefully you found this useful if you're starting out and you're looking at wedding videography and you think, you know, it might be something you want to dabble in. Um, it's been great to have Ollie on and we'll we'll have him on again in the future because we haven't got that many friends who we can drag on. So we'll probably, probably bring him back at some point. But if you've got any questions for next week, you know where to get in touch with us. And we'll next week. That's ambitious, isn't it? It's not, not going to be next week. Next, yeah, you know that. Twenty twenty four, maybe. Yeah. Next episode. I'll have hair again. <laughs> <laughs> you won't. <laughs> no chance. <laughs> now, nah, thanks for listening. We'll see you uh, whenever it happens. It's a nice surprise, isn't it? That's what it is. It's just a Christmas treat when you get one. <laughs> 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 see you next time. See you later. Bye bye. <laughs>